The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, I would like to uh, try this evening to offer a little different interpretation of some of the standard Buddhist teachings. And it's inspired partly by my own practice and um, partly by the needs of the world. So in my own practice, I um, became very interested in meditation and found it very meaningful to go into this world of meditation and ended up going to monasteries in this country in Asia. In some ways, the path of meditation is an inward path because you sit and quiet by yourself and focus on your, breath, on your breathing and inner states of mind. And it uh, can be quite a transformative thing to be able to kind of let go of our attachments, our concerns for the world, our, our preoccupations, and really stay here fully in the present moment and allow the, a natural kind of integrity or fullness um, or a feeling at homeness in our bodies and our mind and hearts to bubble up and fill us, to feel a tremendous amount of peace and well-being. And, um, but in doing that, this journey, in a sense, you can say kind of inward, at some point it does a, a strange transformation. It, it turns itself inside out and it becomes a, a greater connection to the world. And, um, and so what I found was a much greater sense of uh, uh, empathy with the world, connection with the world, sense of um, you know emotional connection, and uh, particularly to the suffering of the world, and uh, that became that connection then became a very important organizing principle for my life and how I live. And so you know initially I practiced more in a sense more for myself, and then I when this transformation happened then my practice became more for the world around me. Uh, traditional Buddhist teachings uh, in our tradition, some of the core teachings, have a lot to do with that path of practice that takes us inward. And so a lot of the insights, a lot of the practice and emphasis are done in personal terms. And you could say uh, in terms of the individual who does the practice, not so much about uh, the relationship of the individual to the world around. And, um, and the more deeper the, you go following the path of practice in our tradition, the more the discourse, the instructions, the more and more, uh, I don't know, personal is the right word, word, but more inward. The states of mind that arise, insight you have. And, um, and then when the, uh, there's a, uh, one of the core teachings of the transformation that uh, people have as they get more and more mature in the practice, are in the terms of something called the Ten Knots. The usual English translation is fetters, but it literally means a knot, K-N-O-T, and, uh, or the Ten Entanglements. And people get free of the Ten Entanglements. And these entanglements are um, all kind of personal. There's nothing about society in them at all. But if we, uh, I was looking at these, thinking about this this, this weekend, and thinking that it's easy to kind of see how the flip side of them, the other side of the coin, kind of, uh, there's a social aspect to them. And, uh, and uh, if we understand it, maybe we can kind of 
appreciate that uh, the transformation that Buddhism points to has a social component, has an effect on how we live our lives in society as well. The, um, uh, the first one, the f- there's 10 of these entanglements, and the first one um, is an entanglement with self, views about the self, ideas about who I am and what I am, self-identity issues, entanglement with self. And uh, I don't think it takes a lot of analysis of looking around at the world around us at people to see that a percentage of the people we know have some entanglement with uh, self-identity issues, with conceit, with attachment to self, who they are, how they want to be seen. And sometimes it can be you want to shake some people because they're so caught up in some view about who they are and you kind of say, this is not necessary or it's not even true. But they're kind of settled into it and for the long term. And um, there can be a lot of attachment to self. Um, and a big part of this practice is to learn to overcome that attachment, to relax, to settle, to uh, not be so fixated on being some particular person, not being attached to identity issues, not defining ourselves so rigidly, this is who I am, but to loosen that up and creates a lot more space in the mind, it creates a lot more space in the heart, makes, makes a lot more space for living, more relaxed, more ease. And that's so, and, and uh, the way we know that, or the way we kind of find that, is that as we do this practice, there's a greater sensitivity to a, a variety of things that fall under the, the name suffering. Stress, distress, um, despair, sadness, sorrow, uh, fear, all kinds of things that are forms of human suffering whether mild or strong. And as we practice, we become increasingly sensitive to the suffering. And it turns out that one form of suffering is the fixating and being attached to self-concept, to me, myself, and mine. And so after a while, you feel, if you do this practice well and you get sensitive, you actually can phys- physically, viscerally feel the dissatisfaction, the, the, the irritation, the the unsatisfactoriness of being caught up and locked in in self-identity and self-definition and assuming this is who I am, this is mine. And so it becomes kind of a natural thing then to want to not suffer and to begin letting go of that grip and to relax. And so with the practice as it deepens, the grip of this self-identity attachment begins to fall away. And one of the, our tradition puts a lot of emphasis on something called not-self or no-self, realizing not-self. So that's very nice for people who are caught up in their self. And uh, many people are. But the flip side of that, of being too excessively preoccupied with defining oneself, self-identity, making a self that's distinct from others, is that it's all too easy then to be othering other people. If I define myself too strongly, I make a very strong line between me here and you there. And sometimes the more attached people are to self, the more that separation exists between self and others. And sometimes we have a very strong process of othering other people. We don't just sim- simply um, you know, watch our own business, our own minds, and you know, cause trouble to ourselves. 
um, you know, unfortunately, many of us will cause trouble for other people. And so we have uh, all kinds of ways in which we other others. And one of the ways, and that's a huge issue in the United States and around the world, is racism. Closely connected to the issues of power, who has the power and who doesn't have the power, and putting people in positions that where they can't somehow get out of being made powerless by the people in power. Um, and uh, so the idea of othering other people and putting people in categories and seeing an us versus them mentality, um, which you know, divides the country in very dramatic ways. There's lots and lots of ways in which people live in this country with these notions of very strong separation of self and other, uh, us versus them. And the more we have an us, the easier it is to make up a self. And I I've, uh, came across a new term, which I thought was really interesting. I think much more, um, um, there's a, a challenge in, among, uh, you know, the, in the kind of racial dynamics of the United States to uh, come up with a kind of term for people who are not white. Because many people who are not white are contending with the white people, the white people who've kind of made a category out of other people. And so those other people have to contend with the category that the white people made. To, you know, so one of the most common ones, the one that was really painful, is black, which was an invention of white people to make this category. And then these people who happen to have a dark skin color have to kind of contend with this thing. And it was a big thing to contend with when you're a slave. So, you know, create, creating another. So, so one, one word for people who are non-white that some people have tried is uh, people of color. Uh, and there's other kind of attempts, but the one I saw most recently was racialized. Racialized. And I thought that was kind of brilliant, I think, because it points out that uh, people are not of a particular race just because they're born that way. It's a, it's a social construction. And so someone constructs the idea and people get racialized. People get put into that category. And then they have to kind of deal with that. So who's racializing? People have studied the racializing around the world. It's usually people in power who kind of put someone else in a different category and racialize them as a way of somehow, you know, keeping their power in some way or their control or doing something. So this idea of othering creating someone who's other. It can be a lot of attachment with that as well. And the thing about that is that um, to do just as much as attachment to self is a form of suffering, attachment to creating an other is a form of attachment too. And in Buddhism, all forms of clinging and attachment are forms of suffering. And so as we sit in practice, the movement is to uh, let go of the of the causes of our suffering, the movements of the heart and the mind that are annoying, irritating, grating, um, um, distressing, stressful. You know, I don't know what particular word people like to use for this because suffering is such a powerful word. And so as we let go of this, this natural tendency, we let go of both movements. We let go of selfing and we let go of othering. And the consequences of that is if it's done well, is that we feel a greater connection to the world. There's less barrier, 
there's less lines drawn between us. And with those less kind of hard lines, we feel people. We have more empathy, concern. There's an easier to have a heartfelt connection to people. And I think that's a, a really helpful for everyone to have that. So this first entanglement that the tradition says falls away as people mature um, uh, can be seen as, as uh, not only letting go of self-attachment, but also a letting go of othering that goes on. The second uh, entanglement is, um, the, uh, the first people to translate these, uh, these ideas into English uh, came up with the word rites and rituals. And I think that uh, it was kind of a little bit Victorian English called rites to translate this way. But rites and rituals, um, the word, one of the words that's translated as, um, as a rites also has been translated by, by some people as habits. And it's probably not what the ancient world meant exactly, meant, but a lot of the ways in which people get into othering is out of, there's habits, deeply ingrained biases that go on. And what, for example, there are, some of them are deeply, almost probably biological instincts that we have, and some are, you know, we know now there's so much research and, and so much um, uh, painfully fascinating um, uh, studies, research studies are, are um, where they uh, show how much implicit bias goes in um, into people's uh, experience of living in society. And so uh, we have almost like, a, it's almost like a habit because it operates on an unconscious level uh, how we, you know. And I read recently, I was reading, reading this great book called uh, Deep Diversity, which was written about, by a man named um, uh, Chudri, He's a, a man who uh, was born in India, of, uh, born in Canada, of uh, parents who immigrated from India to Canada. And he spent a lot of time, his master's thesis and professional life, looking at issue of uh, race, racism, and diversity, and mostly in Canada, but Canada and the United States. And in his book, he, um, uh, he makes a, um, he mentions this person who uh, got a referral to an eye doctor. And the name of the person uh, was some unusual foreign name that, you know, was kind of very unusual for someone, you know, an Anglo-Saxon kind of language world. And this person um, uh, saw the name and then hesitated to call that eye doctor because of the name. And, uh, And the person recognized, you know, if this person had a you know, Anglo name or, you know, you know, some, you know, some typical Anglo Jewish name that the person would have called the doctor right away, but waited because of the name. So we, have, we know these kinds of things and names can make a difference. But when he goes on to explain that the person who hesitated was himself. He was someone who, of brown skin of Indian descent, Come, has his own, he has his own kind of non-Anglo name. And, uh, and he's been studying these issues for years. And he, even he felt, you know, could see that he was, it affected him. And he said, this is, you know, it's so deeply ingrained how this works. So habits, rites and rituals, habits and unconscious bias that we live in. 
And so one of the functions of this practice of ours is to have, start developing a heightened sense of mindfulness and awareness of what arises in our minds uh, and what motivates us to do something. And Andrea Fellow, my co-teacher here today, uh, here was was explaining today, that um, the idea of seeing, having, dividing ourselves into tribes, into kind of self and other, to some degree is pretty normal for human beings to do it. We do it, my family and the rest of the world, different things. But what's not natural is uh, who we put in these categories. So, it's, it's, it's conditioned by our society and our world we live in who we put in these different categories of who's in my tribe and who's outside. And as soon as you have conditioning, then it becomes something that's learned and something that uh, operates a little bit in that part of the mind that if you're sharp enough mindfulness, you can see how it arises, how it occurs. We can see the movement of tension in the mind when we start these habits and distinctions uh, start happening and we no longer kind of kind of operating you know and we can see the bias sometimes arise so this freedom from rites and rituals freedom from habits and automatic kind of bias I think comes along with deeper and deeper mindfulness and practice and as we become free we see this more and here's a reason why I think we see it more clearly the movement to become free of attachment is kind of like, uh, I don't know what the best analogy, but I'll use this first. As we um, um, sand a piece of, or, or clean something better and better, make it really, really clean, then we can see the dirt that falls on it. But if there's a lot of dirt on it, one little more speck of dirt doesn't make any difference. As the mind gets cleaner and cleaner, as the mind gets uh, more and more at, at ease, and less and less contracted and tense, we start noticing the subtle movements of the mind to get contracted again. And some of these unconscious biases and habits that we have do involve a kind of contraction of the mind. And so as we get more sensitive to that, then uh, we become freer and freer of this. The traditional understanding of this freedom from entanglement of rites and rituals is that it arises from um, uh, because we understand that the issue of our suffering is really an issue of contractions or attachments of our own mind. That's That's where we have to pay attention. That's where we have to bring ourselves if we want to be happy and free. And I think the same thing is true to some degree of our relationship to the world around us. If we want to create, be people in the world who don't unconsciously perpetuate harm, we have to really be sensitive and be aware of the slightest little contractions we have and the movements we have and learn to stay free and relaxed in it. The third entanglement is uh, uh, overcoming doubt. And traditionally it says doubt about what the practice is, what the path to freedom is. I'd like to think that when it's uh, the flip side of that and how we live our lives differently then is that when we no longer have doubt, we also no longer have mistrust. And so we learn to, uh, we stop mistrusting people so automatically and easily. But we learn to kind of live in a more trustful way 
in society with the people around us. And I think to be able to have a wise trust of people and to be relaxed about it is a gift that we give people. The next, inten- next two entanglements have to do with uh, sensual desire and uh, ill will, hatred. And those, uh, you know, it's easy to see how once we're kind of free of the attachment to sensual desire, the attachment to resentment and ill will, that that has a social element to it. Because uh, often there's a tremendous amount of harm done in our society by people who are attached to sensual desire, who want and want to acquire. And, um, you know, and want to acquire things that other people, partly by, you know, um, taking things from other people and, and uh, who live in tremendous poverty for the, you know, the good of the people who have the money. And hatred, you know, is the source of war. So once uh, the strong sensual desire abates or attachment to sensual desire abates, attachment to hate goes away, that's a transformation of how we live in relationship to other people. So those are the first five entanglements. The sixth and seventh entanglement has to do with uh, attachment to deep states of meditation, deep states of meditative absorption. And the reason people get attached to those is they're very, very pleasant. And when we, folk, when we get too attached to inner, <coughs> inner pleasure, one of the things that does is it can cut off our relationship to the world outside of us. Strong states of concentration, people feel self-sufficient. They feel like, you know, I don't need to be, pay attention to anyone else. And I've known people who have used these strong states of concentration as a kind of a spiritual bypass, as a kind of way of not being in the world because the world is so difficult for them. And so by getting deeply concentrated, it's a way of disconnecting. So when we overcome this a deep attachment to, uh, to meditation states, then that uh, barrier or that line or that, that, uh, that defense system that's there, that can be very, very deep, releases and I think that I would like to believe that the consequence of that is a heightened sense of empathy. We're no longer focusing on ourselves, we're relaxing. But people who have deep state ability to get deeply concentrated, if we don't get attached to it or don't hold on to it, it's phenomenal the sensitivity that gets born. The deep, deep sensitivity to ourselves, but also to the environment around us. And so with it comes this greater capacity for empathy. And that's, I think, something that uh, is probably in short supply <clears throat> and we could use a lot more of. The, se- the, the eighth of these entanglements <clears throat> is conceit. And conceit also, um, I think the flip side of that, if conceit goes away, is even another cause for greater empathy. Conceit is a narrowing of attention. It's a fixating on oneself. It's a um, very strong source for the self and other kind of uh, line that we have. And conceit uh, in Buddhism has three flavors, three forms. It has a form that many people think about when they think of conceit. And the first form is conceit is um, thinking that... uh, Thinking when one thinks one is superior to other people. But Buddhism stretches the uh, discussion and says it's also conceit if you think that you're uh, worse than other people, inferior. 
And it's also a conceit if you think you're equal to others. <laughs> What's left? What's left is you don't, you, don't, you don't play the comparison game. You leave yourself alone. And that, by doing that, you leave other people alone. You don't put them into a category, higher, lower, equal. It's, you know, all of that is a form of othering. So to let go of that tendency and just to be is a, one of the things that spiritual people often emphasize, the value of just being without those ideas and concepts and comparisons. So when we can be in this way without these strong ideas of conceit, I think it also gives birth to uh, empathy. And empathy means we feel more connected to the world around us. And one of those connections is to the suffering of the world. And so not only are we, the, the practice unfolds by becoming aware of our own suffering and working through it, the practice also deepens by becoming aware of the suffering of the world around us and taking that into account as we choose how we live our lives. And I think there's a certain kind of freedom that comes only when we begin taking into account um, uh, the world around us, the suffering around us, how we live, the impact of our lives on others. And, uh, and I think it's sooner or later, people do this practice, at sooner point when we get deeper and deeper in the practice, there becomes a very strong, I think, natural desire to live in such a way as not to cause any harm at all even unintentional harm. And I think this deep letting go of conceit is part of that movement. The, um, the ninth of these entanglements is restlessness and uh, agitation, which uh, somehow there's a kind of a deep agitation and restlessness in the mind that can be released. And restlessness uh, is a wonderful strategy for uh, avoiding what's going on. And uh, some people will just kind of, by staying restless and agitated, running around, we don't kind of really sit down and open up and really notice what's going on. It kind of, can be an avoidance mechanism. And if you can let go of restlessness and be deeply kind of at rest, it isn't just that you're resting in you know, you know, an isolated way, it means that you can be present for what's going on in this world. You're not avoiding that what's going on in the world anymore but you've learned how to have a sense of a certain kind of ease or subtleness or calmness to really stay present and open and really face what's going on in this world, face the difficulties, face oneself in relationship to what's going on in the world, to really kind of see what's happening and be there. And, and that's a very, very important because that ability to be, not be so restless but to stay and be present opens the doors for the practice to go deeper and deeper. And then... Uh, the last of the fetters, last of the entanglements, is uh, something that um, is sometimes considered to be the ultimate kind of entanglement, the final one to release. And that one is ignorance. And, uh, and so what is it we're ignorant of? What kind of ignorance is the final ignorance? What is it we're ignoring that we finally let go of? And it said the deepest ignorance has in fact to do with the very thing that we started the path for, the very kind of beginning kind of understandings that really began to free us, and that is suffering. That um, there's layers and layers of discovery to be made around how we suffer, how we have the stress or distress that goes on. And um, it's all these different layers 
of ways in which getting attached and clinging. And when the final layer of attachment goes away, uh, then we understand we're no longer ignorant about where freedom is found. And we finally understand once and for all and clearly that, um, that avoiding suffering of any kind at all is a fundamental root of all suffering. But to be able to sit still and turn towards it and see it and find it a freedom with it, then there's wisdom. There's uh, the opposite of ignorance, maybe gnosis, there's understanding. So this idea of art, this particular tradition of mindfulness in Theravada Buddhism uh, uses suffering as the guide for going deeper into freedom and also, I, I would say, into uh, creating a better society to be concerned with the world around us. We don't just tune into our own suffering, we tune in and become aware of what's around us. The way these two work together, though, is the more you can clarify and free yourself from the ways you have suffering here, do that inter- internal work, the easier it is to be present for the suffering in the world. At some point, the suffering of the world doesn't cause you suffering. It gives you empathy, it gives you some sense of pain, it gives you some sense that this is not right, but it's not like one more burden, it's not oppressive because we know how to be at ease and free in the midst of it. And that gives uh, a possibility of a very clean kind of compassion. And it's my heartfelt wish that it means that we become uh, interested in making a better world for our fellow humans, for this planet. So, um, suffering. They uh, say that one of the core teachings of Buddhism is the Four Noble Truths, which have to do with suffering. Uh, There's suffering, there's understanding suffering, there's letting go of the causes of suffering, there's a path to the end of suffering. I thought it was brilliant that the way that the classic formula of the Four Noble Truths is presented, there's no pronouns in it. It doesn't say that you should, you know, recognize your suffering understand the causes of your suffering, understand the, how to get free of your suffering. It just says, know suffering, know the causes of suffering, know the end, of the end of suffering, and know the way to the end. And I think it's brilliant that there's no pronouns. Because as we practice more deeply, it doesn't make sense to only focus on oneself. It only makes sense to kind of have a kind of transparent and open system where self and other are not so separate and the suffering of others becomes my suffering. And hopefully in the best senses of the term, my suffering in some sense becomes the, you know, your suffering and we're in it together without the us versus them. <clears throat> and then I'll, <clears throat> I'll end with um, something that's also important for me. Uh, and was reminded of this recently when someone asked me, um, uh, Gil, do you live continuously in the present moment? <laughs> and um, so I was a little concerned that someone would even think that way about me. Because, you know, there's often a lot of projection onto spiritual teachers. and Usually people think that they're either better than they actually are 
or they think they're worse than they actually are. <laughs> um, but uh, so they ask this question, are you always living in the present moment? And uh, I understand that not literally, because where else would I be? <laughs> but I understood it to be, um, I understood it to be, um, you know, is, am I aware always in the present moment? Is my attention always here and I'm, you know, here? And, um, and I said, no. <laughs> uh, I don't hold up that as the highest goal. Being in the present moment is very nice. It's very helpful. It's, it's usually a good thing. But I think that if you only live in the present moment uh, in that kind of clear, full, embodied way that you can, like sometimes with mindfulness practice, um, I think that actually limits your life. I don't think actually kind of, it's not quite natural to do that. It's my, my, my own personal opinion. I don't want to represent Buddhism saying that. But, but uh, certainly as we practice, it becomes easier and easier to be in the present moment. It becomes more and more second nature to do it. More and more second nature to do so. But the purpose of, the sec- of uh, being in the present moment is not to be in the present moment. The purpose of being in the present moment is so we can address suffering and get to the root of it and free ourselves of it. So I don't use the present moment experience, present moment awareness, as the ultimate standard for how I'm supposed to live. The reference point or the guide for me and how I live my life is not am I or am I not in the present moment. The guide is am I suffering? And I'll ask myself that question sometimes. Am I suffering now? And if I'm not, then I just carry on. But if I'm suffering, then I stop. And the bumper sticker for Buddhists is, I stop for suffering. <laughs> then I stop and take a look at it. And then I know that if, I, if I'm in the present moment, I, it's much easier for me to deal with the suffering, to understand the clinging, the attachment to what's going on when it, it's arising from inside of me. So then I do this practice in a deep way. And then the present moment becomes very, very valuable. And I ask myself, am I suffering? And sometimes I'm kind of suffering. Sometimes my heart breaks. <clears throat> and um, with what goes on in the world. And, and I ask, am I suffering? And I say, yes. Why am I suffering? Because of what I see in the world, what I know in the world. And when that's the case, I don't then turn inward to myself so much. That's not the point. The point then is how do I live in such a way to address that suffering? I can't address all the suffering in the world. Uh, you know, that just, uh, that just doesn't work. But can I live in such a way that I indirectly address it? Can I live in such a way that I'm improving this world that we live in? I feel very motivated that when I feel suffering in the world, that I want it to change me. I wanted to make me come somehow more of a, of, a, of a support for making a better society and world that we have. So suffering becomes a reference point for me. And it might sound kind of depressing, you know, to just, poor Gil, he just suffers better. <laughs> but I find it to be quite liberating and quite helpful. And uh, I find it kind of a, a direct path, a very direct and simple, pragmatic path 
that's free of a lot of metaphysics, free of a lot of strange, complicated, religious, spiritual, existential ideas about what it's supposed to all be about. It's very kind of grounded and simple and ordinary. And that ordinary thing that we can all experience um, becomes this wonderful door that opens up to a tremendous uh, experience of freedom and peace and compassion and love. And hopefully, a door that opens up for us is then a door that we can try to open up for other people as well. And so that this path that we're on, this path of mindfulness, path of Buddhism, is not only a solitary path, not only a path for oneself, but it's also a path for the welfare and happiness of all beings. So as I finish this talk, I slightly, I'm reflecting a little bit about the announcement I made in the be- before the talk about on Saturday we have these two people coming to talk about these two different ideals, the arhat and the bodhisattva. And, uh, and I wasn't so conscious that I was maybe you know, talking in relationship to that. But if you come Saturday, keep this talk in mind and see how they address the same issues. And I bet that they'll also kind of somehow, uh, well, I don't know if they'll say the same things I said, but they'll probably maybe get to it from a different angle or have a different way of saying it, or it'll be interesting to see how these two wonderful teachers uh, address what I've said today. So, I certainly hope that uh, as this practice deepens, develops for you, opens up for you, that, um, <clears throat> that it also not only helps you personally, but gives you a richer, more valuable, more valued uh, connection to the world around you. And through that connection that you make a difference for everybody else. May all beings be happy. Thank you. <laughs>